Hello? Oh, hey, Chris. I, sorry, I, I can't really hear you. It feels like you're, it feels like you're in the space between dimensions or something. No, what do you, what do you mean you're in the space between dimensions? I was joking. But we're supposed to be recording in like 10 minutes. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Um, uh, good, good luck finding your way back to reality, I guess. All right. Bye. Hey, Jason, I got, I, I got to tell you, I got bad news. Oh no. What's the news? So Chris was, Chris was dabbling with, with the void again, and he got sucked into that space between dimensions. And so basically he called me from his, his portal and told me that time works differently there. I don't know. It was some excuse Hmm. about him being stuck between two worlds and he's just not going to be able to make it to record anymore unfortunately at least that's what it sounded like he said he wasn't going to make it here and i kind of stopped listening okay well um how does he get reception there man i can't even get reception in my own home i'm impressed you know he said he said something about tinfoil and um using using plasma i don't know it sounded fake i i think he's just hey hey i I think i heard plasma are you talking about plasma? Yes. I forgot that when you say the word plasma, famed guest Steffi Diem just shows up. That was awesome timing. I can't miss a good plasma drop in. Oh, it's such a good thing you're here because uh, we just I just learned from James, Steffi, that Chris has been sucked into the void and is not available to talk with us this morning. And so do you mind stepping in? Yeah, let's go for it. I'm here. Sure. Awesome. I We should probably do a show then. Start the music. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with us tonight we have Jason. Hey, everyone. And returning guest turned co-host, Dr. Steffi Deem. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming back. So tonight, we're going to talk about some new gene editing therapy that could potentially help people get their vision back in this small study. We're also going to talk about what social media is doing to combat misinformation in the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're going to finish up with my conversation with science communicator and science artist, Dr. Jen Ma. But before we get to that conversation, we're going to start with the news. The ability to inject something into a patient and have it fix something in a targeted way seems like something that is right out of the pages of science fiction, but that is the basis of our first story. Lieber congenital amaurosis, or LCA, is a genetic disorder that targets cells in the retina, which severely impacts the vision of the affected individual. And up until a few weeks ago, it didn't look like there was anything that could be done to remedy this situation. 
So a team from Boston used something called CRISPR to target the cells of the retina and bring a little bit of vision back to these patients. You know, they're not completely restored. This is not a magic on and off switch, but they've started to see shapes and colors and the stories that are coming out uh, from these patients are amazing and inspiring. And I wanted to get everyone's take on this use of gene editing in patients. This stuff is cool. For sure, this stuff is cool. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we only dreamed would be possible, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And 2015, this landmark sort of new approach became available. CRISPR, right? And so let's talk for a second about what CRISPR is, because most people don't understand it very well. Can we actually state the acronym? Because I think that's the most fun part of CRISPR. Right. That's what I was, I think the first (laughs) thing we should do is define what it is, right? So CRISPR stands for, you ready? Clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. It's palindrome. Right. Totally. Exactly. There's a palindrome in here. I love a palindrome. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Who doesn't? I I named my daughter specifically so I could have a palindrome in my life. Ah, that's perfect. So CRISPR is this concept here. It's this this tool that takes, you know, small pieces of bacterial DNA that are repeats. And what's cool about it is that bacteria have sort of like a way to fight viruses. So most people don't realize that more viruses infect bacteria than infect humans, right? So there are a lot of viruses that we have to deal with. You might've heard of one that we're dealing with now called COVID. Actually, that's not even the virus name, right? It's SARS-CoV-2 is the viral name. But the disease that it presents with, as we call it, we're calling COVID, more viruses infect bacteria than they do humans. And so those viruses that infect bacteria are called bacteriophages. They literally, like, we're going to eat, eat bacteria. They are bacteria-eating viruses. And so because of that, bacteria have sort of a collection of mugshots, so to speak, of like the bad viruses they want to keep out, the bad bacteriophages they want to keep out. And they sort of flip through that Rolodex, right? And uh, in their DNA, they have coding that allows them to detect that pretty easily, the ones that are bad. And uh, CRISPR uses those mugshots, so to speak, at least the idea of those, to go in and cut out parts of DNA that are problematic. It could then be replaced with um, corrected DNA. So it's literally a gene editing tool that allows you to do all the things we worried about in like early Marvel and DC origin stories. Yes. Uh, What I really found compelling and and amazing about this story too, is that previously, like on all the earlier experiments using CRISPR, they had removed cells from the patient's bodies, uh, edited them in the lab, and then infused the modified cells back into the patients. But you can't always do that for all these diseases, especially in this case where it's in your retina and it's not easy to access. So this was the first time they were able to treat the cells inside the body by injecting billions of these harmless genetically modified viruses to ferry that CRISPR gene editor into the retinas and they, and it worked and, and this can be life changing. Yeah. That's the coolest part, right? Yeah. Like this, this is one of those things where it's like, you know, we could try it. Let's see what happens. And the least expected result was probably, oh, and it worked. 
and it just kind of worked. Like, I'm sure they were ready for absolutely everything else on that spectrum of possibilities. And I always get really excited when we find a new use for CRISPR because it was discovered in 2000. This use of it was discovered in 2012. And the world thought that, oh my gosh, this is going to change absolutely everything. And then they're like, how how are we going to use it? Uh Uh-oh. We got to figure out that part of it. So there's been like this lull in activity. And now we're hearing more and more about CRISPR. And I get very excited that this is happening. Yeah. So, you know, the big issue here is with great power comes great responsibility. And um, I think part of the reason we haven't seen such a huge, aside from the fact that we've had a pandemic that has slowed down the scientific enterprise in ways that I'm not sure we're going to really understand for at least a decade, but it has significantly halted scientific research worldwide for 18 months, right? I mean, maybe it hasn't completely stopped it, but it certainly did in those earliest months. But, you know, with this power that we have now, the reason more of this science didn't flourish initially on is because everyone said, well, we got to pump the brakes, right? Because this is a really potentially dangerous tool, then we need to make sure we understand how we're going to use it ethically. And so the idea that, you know, taking cells out of an individual, these would be adult cells, right? Not germline cells like a sperm and an egg cells that would, you know, be responsible for helping to propagate the species later on, you know, advance your, uh, your line, right? But we're talking about cells that have already differentiated into something else. Take those out, edit them, put them back, they function a little bit better. But that change in the phenotype of that cell, and therefore, you know, the problems that were being manifested maybe going away, um, wouldn't then be passed on to the next generation because that mutation that was bad is still in those sex cells. This kind of change in the way that we're treating people has the ability to target sex cells in a way that wasn't possible really before, or maybe wasn't as ethical. Whether it's ethical now is also a different issue and a bigger question. But to me, that seems like we're going to be pumping the brakes again now, because now we have to think about the consequences sure. long-term for the species, right? Different than we w- than we needed to pump the brakes last time. Yeah. Right. And it's also looking at ethics and equity too. How accessible is this to everyone? Right. I mean, we're not trying to design a designer human race. This is this is the real danger, right? I mean, this getting into the hands of people who are um, believers in eugenics has the potential to do significant, serious damage to, you know, populations of the world. And so while this is really exciting because it can cure diseases, immediately my mind goes to what is Doc Ock going to be doing? Right. You know, it's not going to be curing um, retinal diseases. Right. It's probably going to be enhancing the retina to shoot laser beams or something like that. I'm just going to call you out on that Doc Ock reference. Plasma. <laughs> yes, I love Everything it. goes back to plasma. That's very true. You know what? That's not even a call out. That was a lean in and I appreciated that a lot. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the team, Steffi. We're so glad to have you here. Batting a thousand. Thank you. I guess I should also make it clear when I talked about how excited I was for CRISPR, it was about like the uh, genetic disorder and disease curing side of it and not the gross eugenics Dr. Harvey Kellogg side of it. Uh, I want to make a bright line between those two. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody thought any different. I I totally agree. I think in the background, you you have to always keep these things in mind, though. Yeah, absolutely. um, To kind of balance it. 
But this is a fabulous response, especially hearing people's description, like the patients where it worked. Being able to see bright and vivid colors for the first time in decades, being able to see a sunset. I mean, we just these are things we take for granted. And that is allowing people to do to have these wonderful experiences and navigate the world easier. Mm-hmm. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing that we can kind of give people like these incredible joyous experiences, but also I think you hit on it too. We're not great at making just the general world easy to navigate for people with any kind of differences in their senses. Uh, You know, it takes a huge breakthrough in science to make their lives easier rather than just these small things that we could do to make their lives easier along the way. Uh, And I think that's another thing that we shouldn't lose sight of as well. But, uh, you know, this falls into the category of YouTube video that I love of people getting, like, the color blindness glasses and finding out that purple exists and uh, children hearing their mother's voices for the same time. I might look like this, this big burly monster, but inside it's people experiencing new things for the first time that really, really tugs at my heartstrings. It's back when social media was used for good. Oh man. Let me tell you something about social media, Jason. It's not always used for good. Who knew? I, not me. So the big the big headline that we're covering right now in this seamless transition is the fact that YouTube, <laughs> our benevolent overlord, has decided to eliminate certain hashtags and certain channels that are propagating this vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing a resurgence in. Uh, You know, we saw a little bit of a spike in vaccination rate, and now it's going down. And YouTube thinks it might be, hey, these people that might be a little bit anti-vaccine on YouTube may be affecting the vaccine rate. I'm shocked that they made this leap in judgment. But that's the headline of this specific story. I think a broader conversation is what we're seeing over the past week with all social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. I'm sure there are others that that the youth will tell me about, um, MySpace, Friendster, um, LiveJournal. (laughs) (laughs) But we're seeing how social media can affect the way that we think about all information, but specifically how we feel about science and medicine and health. So what do we think? Burn our Facebook accounts? Full disclosure, I still have a Facebook account. I mean, that's how I keep track of my dog friends. They just don't use email. They're on Facebook. Puppy pictures. That's what I use it for. Oh, I was surprised to read this. Um, there's a nonprofit group. It's Center for Countering Digital Hate. And they published research this year showing that a group of 12 people were responsible for sharing 65% of all anti-vaccine messaging on social media. Mm -hmm. I mean, this just shows you how powerful small groups are with really compelling content. And so that's why I think it's really important for companies like Facebook, YouTube, 
to come out and acknowledge that the things that they're allowing to propagate are causing harm. And that's kind of what came out in the Facebook whistleblower was that they knew they were causing harm and they didn't stop it because they want to profit off of their people using their website. Yeah, right. It's a terrible, terrible, vicious circle here because social media sites, and we know specifically about Facebook from this week, want to keep that engagement going forward, right? They want to keep members, you know, actively engaged with material. And the best way to do that is through anger. And so driving sort of that that anger approach to stuff. And when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, right, um, that anger is driven by those um, on one side who are vehemently anti-vax and those on the other side who don't understand why someone would be vaccine hesitant, right, and just want to offer up as much good information as they can to try to convince the people who won't get vaccines that that they should get vaccinated. And the problem with that is that we know that that approach doesn't work, right? That's actually called the information deficit model. There's a researcher, um, I think at Yale, named Dan Cahan, who has shown that that people don't make decisions entirely based on what information they have, but instead, there's a significant component of their decision-making process that involves the company that they keep. And so this idea of groupthink is a real thing. And it's much easier for someone to be swayed by a group of people that they perceive to be like-minded than it would be someone who is going to have a differing message. And so um, the message to everyone out there is that, you know, if you have vaccine-hesitant friends, the best way to sort of help them come to the understanding of the importance of getting vaccinated is to understand why they are vaccine hesitant, not to tell them all the reasons that they should get vaccinated. That's not going to be effective. What's going to be effective is showing some empathy and trying to understand where the obstacles lie. And if you can understand that and keep that conversation moving forward, right? You're not going to change anyone's opinion in one conversation. You're only going to change someone's opinion if you can continue moving a dialogue forward. I think uh, one of the most dangerous things that we're seeing with the information we're finding out about Facebook is that it is engineered at like the algorithmic level to create an echo chamber. Or if you're opposed to to kind of the, I, gu- I guess we would call it the anti-vax viewpoint, to create like an outrage chamber. But either way, it's pointing you towards these things because these are the videos, the articles, the comments that are getting the traction. They're getting comments, positive or negative. They're getting likes or dislike. Can you dislike on Facebook? It's been a while since I've been on. Uh, <laughs> you can do a lot of different emotions now, too. You can sad face. You oh, can, man. You can be angry face you know yeah maybe we right. are being too hard on facebook then if you can angry you can hug and it's a little hard oh i take <laughs> it back <laughs> but uh but what what it's doing is is pushing the conversation this way and the alternative to that which is reasons why maybe you should get vaccinated is just not breaking through because it doesn't trigger like that that golden path of both outrage and pro. It's unfortunate that what we're not seeing are these tech companies addressing that part of the system. They're they're shutting down the anti-vax sites on YouTube, these 12 big anti-vax sites, which is great. I'm glad that's happening so that 65% of the misinformation just kind of goes away. 
but they're not acknowledging the fact that the algorithm is pushing people in one direction because these are the messages that are getting traction. So I guess that's my problem. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You look at some of these scientific-based videos too, and just scientists in general, some scientists, we'll put it this way, there's a tendency to maybe not listen to the person, not listen to their concerns. This goes back to what Jason was saying earlier and using jargon and throwing scientific data at people when you're not meeting them on what they actually care about and addressing what they're really worried about. And, and helping them be better informed. Because they are asking great questions. I mean, they are looking for answers, right? And, and so they're out there trying to find sources that they trust. And, and there's this mismatch that they're finding. And that's both a, be- a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, we have so many social media science communicators, self-described science communicators out there. And only a portion of them are actually trained to think that way, right? To think that, hey, I need to reduce the amount of jargon that I use. I need to make this accessible to those who don't understand it. Those people are doing a phenomenal job at you know, communicating with the public. The ones who are not trained that way, some of them are, are doing a good job of it because they innately understand that, but others are actually creating more of a void, a rift here, right? It's like, well, why am I going to engage with this person, if I'm a member of the public, if I still don't understand what they're trying to tell me, but they're trying to tell me as a member of the public, right? Um, I don't get it. They're actually doing more of a disservice to the problem. It's not to say they're doing a disservice to science. They're doing no different than scientists have been doing since science started, right? We are traditionally horrendous at communicating with people who don't have the same language that we have. And the language that we have is one we created for ourselves to be exclusive. And so it shouldn't be a shock to anyone that the public doesn't get it um, when we use the words that we made up to describe something <laughs> so that we would be able to use fewer words and those in the know are in the know, right? The scientific enterprise has issues that are baked into it, and that's one of them. Yeah. The fact that science, the word science, not the scientific method, not anything associated with actually doing science, but the word science has become this like politicized buzzword that you can use to either shove towards your maybe not following the scientific method viewpoint, or you can just like use this so that your jargon filled tweet storm uh, seems authentic. When, when we have Every politician throwing around their thought that you know science matters, uh, it it me- makes the word not mean so much anymore. I think that diluting the term science it makes it harder for everybody to communicate these things to communicate their ideas effectively. I completely agree. And also diluting the word research too, right? So research is a very specific thing that scientists do. You're coming up with a hypothesis, performing experiments, seeing how close it goes. It, you know, they compare. Um, you're looking at scientific journals that have credible data behind them. You're not Googling what someone else thought or some anecdotes that, that, that they personal experiences. That's not really research. It's a really rigorous process. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that scientists, actually, it kind of works both ways. One thing that scientists have started to use, one phrase that scientists have started to use more frequently is this idea of sound science, right? The results are sound. And I'm here to tell you that that's not coming from a good place at all. Um, in fact, James, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there is this mistrust of science right now that is, you know, we haven't seen this kind of a mistrust, at least not in my lifetime, but it didn't just start now with vaccine, vaccine hesitancy. It really started, this wave started in the late 80s with climate change research, right? And Chris Mooney, actually, who used to be a, a science reporter for the Washington Post, I'm not sure what he's up to now, but he uh, he had a really important beat for a long time, and that was to cover science at the federal level. And he wrote a book in the mid-2000s called The Republican War on Science. And he traces the roots of the use of the word sound science to congressional hearings with regard to climate change data and politicians wanting to know which of the data that were being reported were actually sound experiments, right? And now scientists are using this language because it resonates with politicians and it is rooted in the worst of all places because no one outside of the scientists themselves have the capability of, of defining what is sound in terms of an experiment. It doesn't mean that they are the only ones who should be able to interpret those data. But when it comes to critiquing the research design, politicians don't have the necessary training to understand how to critique it. And um, not even all scientists do, right? I mean, I've sat on federal um, funding panels in the past. I'll get grants to review. And sometimes I know exactly to a T what this research is. And oftentimes I am in the generally close area um, so I can understand the big picture, but when it comes to the very minute design of it, like I have to rely on the ad hoc reviewers, right? The ones that that the agency sent out and said, you're an expert in this particular methodology. I need you to critique this for us so we can make a better decision, right? We rely on those people who do have the training. And so to Steffi's point, research doesn't mean I went on YouTube and watched JFK Jr. tell me that vaccines are going to cause autism, right? I mean, it's not even going to a popular press recount of a paper published in The Lancet how many years ago that has been retracted how many years ago right. now that uh, vaccines might be related to a cause of autism, right? To use the language that I, I really hate to use, that was not sound science. I feel like I do have to issue the correction to what you just said so we don't get a bunch of QAnon supporters flooding in here. It's it's RFK Jr., uh, not JFK oh, Jr. <laughs> right. Thank you. No, 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 no. That's a great point. It is RFK Jr. Not the, not the very dead JFK Jr. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's correct. RFK Jr. No, thank you, thank you. It, yes, it, JFK it does not Jr. make it any less ridiculous that this is happening. So I've seen this pop up with COVID-19, right? Suddenly everyone who's a scientist is an epidemiologist, and you'll see this. So this goes back to uh, what Jason was saying about you're specialized. We are taught in school. I have a PhD in physics. I know physics really well. I don't I, I don't know all the other subjects really well, so I'm going to not comment on them. I am not an expert on viruses, so it's kind of respecting that process and other people's expertise. I mean, that's kind of respecting science, too. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. 
On the other hand, I would say, though, that as someone who is a PhD in science, right, and I'm in the same category here, like I don't know epidemiology, right? My PhD is in anatomy and evolution. But I know enough about how DNA works, how mRNA works, because I'm in a biology, right? And so I have the ability to translate some of the misinformation into stuff that can be useful. But when it comes to things that I don't know the first thing about, right, reproductive rates of, of um, viruses and, and the epidemiology behind it all, I, I rely on people who know that stuff and we're trained to understand that research. Yeah. It's just that I have the ability to bridge a gap on the biology side that others don't. And so that's, I sort of feel like that's my role right now you know, in the world is to make sure that, you know, if there's something that someone doesn't understand about COVID, because that's what's dominating all of our lives right now, or climate change, right? Again, I don't know enough about it, um, but I can certainly translate some of what I can read into things that are are digestible for mm. public consumption, right? Then that's really what I have to do, right? That's, that's the best way that I can yeah. do good in the world right now. Yeah. And I think the other thing we can do is recognize more easily the people who are trained and also effective at communicating and push those voices up. If we find some, we should invite them on the podcast. We talk about seamless transitions and boy, was that one. (laughs) I didn't see any seams. No threads are bare here. We've been talking a whole bunch about the downside of social media, but I think maybe a less depressing way to frame it and maybe frame it as what the Science Night brand is going forward is highlighting the people that are doing good work in this field. And tonight we have Dr. Jen Ma, who is doing just that. So... Dr. Ma has a background in stem cell bioengineering, and she received her PhD from the University of Toronto just last year. And since then, she has taken her passion for art and ability to communicate science, which is what we've just been talking about, and she's joined them together seamlessly, as seamless as this transition, to try to find a new and more gentle way to communicate these difficult topics. So after this quick commercial break, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Jen Ma. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Jen, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me. We had a little bit of difficulty at the beginning, but it's not a good podcast unless you start by having all of the gremlins fly into the machine. So uh, thank you for for holding my hand through that process. (laughs) You're welcome. So before we get into what you do right now, I'm going to give you the easiest question that you've ever had, and then it's going to turn into the hardest question when you overthink it a little bit. (laughs) Why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about yourself? 
Right. I honestly think that's the hardest question. Basically, I am currently an independent science communicator, but before that, I have a background in biomedical engineering. I did my PhD in stem cell research at the University of Toronto. And while I was there through the stem cell community, I learned the importance of science communication and how crucial it is to share what we're learning through the science and research with the general public. And one of the ways that it kind of uh, really illustrated that is how stem cell tourism was becoming a thing where these Clinics are popping up everywhere, offering unauthorized, unproven, and often dangerous therapies to to patients, patients who are desperate to try anything to just feel better. And I felt that, you know, as part of the stem cell community and a researcher, I had the responsibility to share my knowledge with people so that they don't fall for for these types of uh, traps. And that's kind of how I got into science communication. And so in the last couple of years of grad school, uh, I've been kind of doing different self-initiated projects and also participated in um, other projects such as some cell talks in Canada where we engage high school students and kind of expose them to, you know, the latest research that we're doing. And with that, I've also started bringing in my passion for art and design, something that I've always loved growing up as a kid. I was always doodling. I grew up in Hong Kong, so I was obsessed with manga. And so I was just drawing every day. I did some painting. And then after high school, I got into photography a little bit. And then it kind of came back full circle, you know, when I was grad school, I was, you know, like every other grad school student was stressed out and and tired and, you know, needed something outside of my research to kind of re-energize myself. And so I went back into drawing. Um, I got into calligraphy and hand lettering. And one day I was just like, why don't I combine this with the science communication that I'm trying to do? And that's kind of how I started marrying the two, creating visuals, illustrations, sometimes like figures for publication, and also a few journal cover designs that were actually published published and uh, we're very happy about that. So that's kind of an overview of what I've been doing in the last years, (laughs) decades. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, start out with the biggest questions and that that just gives me things to talk about for the rest of the interview. The thing I want to start off with is you've gone through the grad school, you have received your PhD, but you're no longer working in your field of research. Uh, is that correct? Yep, that's that's correct. Was there any pushback from colleagues, advisors, mentors when when you made that decision? Um, I don't think so. My colleagues and mentors is, have always been extremely supportive. I think ever since I kind of made a name for myself for being like the graphics person in the lab, everybody came to me for help with like the posters presentations, figures for the papers. And then like when the opportunity 
came up to do the journal covers. They're like, Jen, you have to do this. And so throughout my exploration of doing scientific illustration and also communication, they've always been extremely supportive. And um, my supervisor, Dr. Peter Senstra, he's also the champion of his students, always looking up for us, looking for opportunities. As soon as he heard that I want to go into science communication, he's like, how can I help? These are the people I know who, you know, may be doing the things that you're interested in. And like, let me know if, if I can introduce. So I'm very lucky. Nobody in my life is really against it. Maybe if my family is a bit confused by it. <laughs> it's like, oh, you spent so long doing your PhD and is this still relevant? And I tell them it, it is. It, it really is. All the skills that I learned from grad school, I'm applying right now. So they're also happy about that. That's really great. It seems like a lot of grad students would probably benefit from hearing that there is alternatives other than lab-based bench research or riding that tenure track ladder all the way to the finish line. You know, it doesn't seem like life in the academy necessarily presents a ton of options outside outside of like the traditional we'll call them science tracks what advice would you give to a phd student um, a postdoctoral student somebody that is in a position similar to you that may not may not see a future for themselves working inside of the university system or the lab system yeah i think that's a really good question Fortunately, I think both myself and a lot of my peers also kind of looked outside of, you know, traditional academia jobs or that career path. And so it was quite apparent to me pretty early on that there are options. I think one of the things that we all really benefited from is just to go explore and talk to people. There are lots of opportunities in consulting and communication, etc. And it, the best way to explore them is to reach out to people who do them, talk to them and, and understand if that is something that's right for you. And if there's opportunity to actually do some kind of internship or like some way that you can get the industry experience that is also extremely helpful. Just in terms of understanding what the work really is, how you can apply your skills, and whether it is a good fit for yourself. That's great advice, and I'm sure it's very important for a lot of early career people to hear as well. And I want to kind of move on a little bit and talk about the project that you are now working with, something that I have come to love since you've sent me the link called Gentle Facts. I think this is such a great idea. And the idea is delivering compassionate science communication. Do you want to talk a little bit about what compassionate science communication is? The way I believe in and really advocate for is that the audience that we are communicating with is at the center of our communication, at least for myself. They are the people that I'm serving. And so it only makes sense to make sure that they 
are taken care of. Not only that they're given the information, but also their well-being is taken care of. Their needs and values are understood by the communicator so that we can actually provide value in the form of scientific information. And so what I think is extremely important is to listen to the audience with an open mind, not just going in with our own agenda, thinking, oh, I think this is going to be the best for the audience. You know, if my goal is to help them make this very particular decision after uh, our discussion or our chat. I just think that Oftentimes, you know, when you're trying to sell something, they can smell it from a mile away and they will be a lot less receptive if that's your mindset. But if you go in and genuinely want to know what they're thinking, what they're feeling and what are the goals they want to achieve and then offer them whatever information you have that you think may be beneficial for them. And I use the term offer because I think they have all the rights to not accept it as well. I think that is the role of of a compassionate science communicator. And hopefully through that interaction, we would leave the audience feeling more empowered, feeling um, that they know what they can do to make themselves happier or safer or more confident or a more valuable member of the community. Um, I think that would be the ultimate goal of the science communicator who practice compassionate science communication. You know, even though my co-host Jason is not here today, I can feel him just doing fist bumps in the air, <laughs> smiling from ear to ear at what you're saying, because it is, it is his mantra. You know, we are living at a time where the reluctance to accept sometimes even the most basic scientific theories and hypotheses, you know, there's just not a lot of trust in science right now. It's so easy to blame the general public or the people who are reluctant to kind of buy what we're selling. I I, I know you just said not to sell, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm running out of metaphors here. <laughs> it's not on the person, the general person who does not have years and years of training to just kind of blanketly understand what you're saying. It's on the communicator to be able to talk about their work. And one of the things that we're trying to do with this podcast is to, A, make scientists more relatable and kind of demystify the science, but also highlight the fact that scientists just need to be better at communicating about their work in a way that anyone can understand, and then meet people where they are. Don't assume where they are on their path towards you know, scientific inquiry, where they may be in their education process. So, you know, you may have graduated from 25th grade, but uh, the average person you're talking to uh, has not. Um, so I think, I think that is great. And I love that you are bringing art into your science communication specifically, because I think there is an, an unnecessary gap between the sciences and the arts. And we forget that sometimes the visual media is just the most effective way to 
quickly get that uh, across. So I wanted to ask you um, if you could talk to us a little bit about the process in your art and then bringing that into your science communication. And the idea that somebody can do something that is artistically beautiful and informative is as close to magic as we can get. <laughs> I, mean, I doubt that you're a terrible artist. I think, I think the great thing about art is that it's whatever you want it to be. There's so many different types and forms and styles and ways to do it. Um, and I think the most important part is that you keep that in mind, right? What do you want the art to do for you? Is it to express yourself, communicate your emotions, is it to inspire other people? And the underlying principle of creating the art for gentle facts is that because we're specifically serving an audience that is overwhelmed, that is trying to get away from the polarized fighting on the internet, you know, nowadays it's, it's really hard to find a place where people actually listen to each other. And so through the art, we really want to set the tone and create that space and environment where our audience can feel safe, can feel welcomed, and feel like they can comfortably ask questions, engage in discussions with people who may not have the same opinions as themselves. And that's kind of the atmosphere that we want to create with the art. And when I kind of first started experimenting with the style and colors, that's what I had in mind. Something that is calming, soothing, friendly looking. So we use a lot of pastel colors. We add blinking eyes to characters to make them more friendly. When we don't actually want them to think something is friendly, for example, when I draw a coronavirus, I'm not adding googly eyes to it because we don't want people to think that is what is a is a friendly, <laughs> safe thing to approach. Right? We want them to be cautiously optimistic when dealing with this thing. So that's kind of some underlying principles. Once we add in the science communications, I always try to craft a message first. What is it that we want to communicate? What information we're, we're providing the audience? What are the emotions that we're trying to address? And what are the emotions that we, we're trying to promote in the audience? That then inform me what I'm actually going to going to depict in the images, in the illustrations, in the art. I think that is really important because to me, I do believe that the message is the most important. Like that's what we're trying to communicate. And then in this case, the art is more of playing kind of an assistant role to help set the tone to help us connect with our audience at a more emotional level and to help regulate their their emotions as they're like going through the information you know so that they don't feel too much anxiety I deal so much in a non-visual format as you can tell I am built for radio but the idea that there can be so many things wrapped up into the message. You know, you have the information that you're trying to convey, the feeling that you're trying to have the viewer experience, and how that makes them interact 
with the science, but also the art uh, as well. If anyone wants to look at what you're doing and think it is anything other than very scientific and also very grounded in the scientific method, you know, I, they can just listen to this over and over and over until they get it. Uh, I think that's that's wonderful. So now the thing we want to do is... That thing I've been talking about and hinting at is kind of demystifying the person. You know, we've talked about what you do, how you work, how you're trying to change the world through your art, which is, I think, give it a couple months and you'll get there. (laughs) What do you do when you are not being the science communicator, when you are not uh, trying to make positive change in the world through your work? I think I go through phases where there are times when I'm just like, it's all about work, work, work. <laughs> but then I've, I've actually been very, very lucky since I graduated. I, I defended last September and then I stayed in Canada for a couple of months with my partner and his parents. So that was really great getting to know them at a more daily level. We actually lived together for a couple of months. And then I moved back to Hong Kong for a little bit to spend time with my family. Because my, all, all of my immediate family um, is still in Hong Kong. And so I got to, you know, whenever I was not working, play with my nephews who are one and three years old. And, you know, the, the, the most active time in their life, they just always want to find someone to play with. Um, so that, that family time's been really, really great, not only with my nephews, obviously, but also my parents and my brothers. Again, like being back in, in their lives was really great uh, since I've been away from home for so long. Uh, I, I left home when I was 16. I've spent half of my life away from home. Um, and part of why I decided to go into science communication and do my own thing is because I want the flexibility for myself to go see them whenever I want and be able to spend extended periods of time with them. I just feel like I can't miss more time with my family um, anymore and I can't stand it anymore. So this has been really great. Like that six months was amazing. And then after that, I moved to the United States. I'm currently in Hawaii. (laughs) So that's been very helpful with the work-life balance thing because the islands are just magical. Everything grows here. Everything's so lush. There's so much to see. I was on Big Island for, for two weeks, and now we're on in, in Kauai. And I'm amazed by how much the scenery changed. Even the dirt, the color of the dirt is different. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's been really great, like, being able to explore nature, just be outside, got really, really tanned, and, and you know, taste the salt water of the ocean every day. Um, that's kind of what I've been doing. <laughs> you know, I I think if you haven't sold the idea of maybe not working within the academy or within the uh, laboratory system uh, before, you, you may have just done it right. right there. You know, get a job in science communication, have time for your family, and also several weeks in Hawaii. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Potentially months. <laughs> you know, um, Who's counting at this point? It, does does time actually matter when you're 
when you're just surrounded by all of that beauty at all mm-hmm. times. Um, it almost doesn't seem fair how beautiful some places uh, can be, um, especially as we're gearing up to endure months and months of cold. I mean, you've lived in Toronto, you know, you know what yeah. we're starting to get ready for here in the northern areas. Yeah. Uh, it's already it's it's August, and we're already starting to think about snow. <laughs> So you have been very generous with your time, and I will let you get back to the beautiful day that is awaiting you outside of your room. The last thing I want to ask you is, how can we follow you? How can we support you? How can we make sure that you are going to be able to do your work well into the future? So the easiest way to find me is through our Instagram page at Gentle Facts Weekly. We also have a website, which is gentlefacts.com, and you can find a little bit more information there and also subscribe to our newsletter. And yeah, I would say those are the, the easiest way to find out more about what we do, get a taste of it, um, and reach out to me if you would like to. Thank you to Jen Ma. You can find links to everything she does at her website. My name is James Reed, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, hey, why don't you go over to at James underscore Reed and then the number three. So that's James underscore Reed three. Jason, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. So that's at O-R-G-A-N-J-M. And Steffi, tell the kids at home where they can find out more about what you're doing. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Steffi Deem. Um, I spell Steffi, S-T-E-F-F-I-D-I-E-M. And on Twitter, I'm going to be sharing pictures. We're building a tokamak. It's a fusion reactor. So follow me. Follow along our journey in building a tokamak. And also pick random pictures from my lab class. That happens too. Perfect. It's getting It's getting hot up in Madison, everybody. If you want to find out more about the Science Night podcast, go to our website, website, scinight.com. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T dot com. And you can follow us on Twitter, which is really just a way for me to highlight the people that are doing good work in science communication at Science Night 1, because at Science Night will not give me their handle. So follow us at Science Night and the number one that is going to do it for us this week thank you so much for listening we will be back in two weeks with another episode until then have a great night the science night podcast is a proud member of the river power podcast mill to find out more about our shows go to riverpower.xyz I thought that was pretty good. We followed the follower, right? We uh, we made our partners look good. Yes, and? We did it all.